Welcome to the I Will Teach You a Language podcast, weekly doses of language learning tips and motivation to help you become fluent in any language. With me, Ollie Richards. Hello. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the I Will Teach You a Language podcast. Great to have you here. If this is your first time listening, well, what can I say? Welcome. This is a podcast where we talk all about language learning. Uh, I speak eight languages. And I've learned them the hard way through long and hard graft. And in this podcast, what I do is I discuss all the lessons that I've learned from my many years of language learning experience so that you can become a better, faster, more effective language learner. Now, today we've got a fantastic interview. It is with the one and only Dr. Barbara Oakley, who is the creator of the most popular online course of all time, Learning How to Learn, with almost two million registered students. But in fact, in this discussion, we don't talk so much about that course. There, there are plenty of other podcasts and interviews uh, with Barb where you can learn more about that. What I'm interested in is her journey with languages. You're going to love this. She left school and joined the military because she thought that the military would pay for her to learn Russian. And they did. After studying with the military, she went on to work on Soviet trawlers in the Bering Sea, speaking Russian and drinking vodka with people who were all these Russians living on board. She then later decided to totally reinvent her career, took a course in elementary mathematics, and went on to become a professor of engineering at a top university. So why does someone do all this? Well, what's at the root of Barb's lifelong learning is this fascination with exactly that. It's lifelong learning. How can we become better learners. Now this applies to you whatever stage of life you're at and whatever situation you're in, whether you're a high school student or whether you're retired. Learning how to learn is something that we don't get taught at school. Despite all the incredible educational institutions we have around the world, one of the things that does not get the light of day is talking about how to learn, the process of learning. How does one learn? Listeners of this podcast will know how important this is to me because learning a language is all about reflecting on your own progress and your own skills. So that's why in this interview we talked specifically, we spend the time talking about Barb's experience learning Russian. How did she learn Russian in the military? How was it taught? What did she then go on to do? And what was the experience like on the ships in the Bering Sea with all these Russians? It's super interesting, and I really hope you enjoy it. Before we get into the interview, of course, I'd like to thank the people who support the show and make it possible. It is, of course, the wonderful italki. What italki does is that they help you get speaking practice and lessons in the language that you're learning. So, for example, if you're learning Russian and you've been studying with some books for a while, but you really feel like you need to start speaking with native speakers. What you would do is you go onto italki, you browse the many, many Russian teachers on the platform, you simply select the one that you think you get on well with, you book lessons, and then you turn up and you have lessons on Skype over the internet. They can be uh, formal teaching lessons, or they can just be simple speaking practice, which can be extremely affordable. So if you'd like to get $10 worth of free credit towards a bit of speaking practice in the language you're learning, please go to iwillteachyoualanguage.com forward slash free lesson, and follow the instructions on the screen. Okay, it's time to get into today's interview with Dr. Barbara Oakley. If you'd like to follow along with the notes from the episode, there are extensive notes covering the things that we talk about. There's also uh, this same interview on in video format, in case you'd like to watch the video. You can find all of that stuff uh, on the show notes, which will be at 
iwillteachyourlanguage.com forward slash barb, B-A-R-B. That's iwillteachyourlanguage.com forward slash barb. So without any further ado, let's get into today's conversation with Dr. Barbara Oakley. I began by asking her to give a little bit of background about who she is. Let's see. When I was a little girl, I grew up speaking a single language. It was English, as you might guess. And for some reason, I was very interested in learning another language. I didn't really have an opportunity to do that. I grew up in a society where everybody spoke English around me. And in There was something about learning another language that I thought would get me in touch with reality more deeply. Um, If sort of a different perception of how the world works might help me better understand how the world works. So I... I I couldn't do math and science. I was terrible at them. And so, you know, so I was intent on learning another language. And there was a way to learn another language and actually get paid for it. And that was to join the army. So I did that right out of high school. And I learned Russian. I spent about a year and a half at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. Um, And there... I think what really happened is I began to learn how to learn. Uh, the The reality is the the military's program on language learning is very intense. It's an immersive program, and I I I learned Russian pretty well. And then later I I went out and worked on Soviet trawlers up in the Bering Sea, and that's where I really learned Russian. Uh, and if I have a little bit of vodka, it all comes back very nicely. But uh, then I I used some of those skills that I'd used to learn language to later turn to see if they could help me in learning math and science. And lo and behold, they could. When I was 26, I started at remedial algebra, and now I'm a professor of engineering. So the the bottom line to all of this is that language learning is, I think, one of the the most helpful things you can do as a learner. Before I start to ask you about many of the things you've just mentioned, let's just finish off the story with perhaps the most well-known part of it, which of course is the learning to learn course. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that and how that came to be. Oh, okay. So I I teach a course called Learning How to Learn with Terence Sanowski. He's the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute. And it's uh, it is the world's largest massive open online course. There's nearly 2 million students, registered students now. And it, what's so funny is um, I, I wrote this book called The Mind for Numbers, and don't let the title fool you. It's actually a general book of learning, that uh, all about learning, that grew out of my language learning and is applicable to language learning. But I thought, you know, people really like to watch videos and, and learn in other ways than just books, uh, as, for example, podcasts. And so I thought, oh, you know, I should try to do a massive open online course, a MOOC is what it's called. And so I I went down to the basement. And at that time, I didn't know that 
doing something called green screen, which is uh, putting a green cloth up and kind of replacing your background with all sorts of interesting things was considered a very advanced technology. I just thought, oh, well, that looks cool. I think I'll do that. And so that's the approach I used. And I mean, I remember looking at my husband going, you know, do you think anybody will even watch these videos? And and then it became the most popular course, massive open online course of all time, which we never expected. But I think part of it is because it it connects the underlying um, strategies of learning between all sorts of different things, between math and science and music and dance and language learning. It's um congratulations on the success of the of the course for a start. And that really are that really is uh, phenomenal in terms of the scale and impact um, that you've had. I guess the what, what's what's interesting about that is that the people who come to enroll in this course by by virtue of the fact that they've found the course and they've enrolled, they are interested in learning to learn better. Do you think that that curiosity about learning is something that college students also naturally have? Or is this something that we develop as an adult? Oh, that's a good question. Well, here's a little secret. A few of our students are actually college students. Uh, The primary demographic is between 25 to 45 years old. And... So you might ask, well, why is that? And I think it's for several reasons. I, I think that sometimes those who are trying to um, uh, – that universities are a little bit skittish about letting people know about MOOCs because they're a bit competitive with them. And so a lot of college students have never heard of a MOOC before. And it's, it's kind of surprising, but uh, you know, that's, uh, that's what it is. But the reality is that I think a lot of college students could greatly benefit from learning how to learn. I mean, it's shocking. Think about it. Uh, from most people take from 12 to 16 years of education and never have a single course on how to learn effectively, even though they have courses on virtually everything else. It's a little like the personal finance point as well, isn't it? That you know we, that, you know we 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 come out of college and we start to live, and the number one thing that governs our lives is money, and yet we never get taught about it. But let's let's not go down that particular rabbit hole. Um, so, what changes then from the eighteen-year-old who goes to college to the thirty-year-old who suddenly decides that he or she needs to know how to learn better? Can you, from all the work that you've you've done on the observ- your observation of the students. Can you point to any particular thing that changes, that, that, that brings about this kind of realization of, hey, I need to, you know, I need to up my game in this, in this area? Oh, what a good question. I've never been asked that question before. And it is such a, um, such an insightful uh, question. I think that when you're in college or you're in high school, Everything's presented to you on a platter, 
And it's kind of like a really full platter. So you've got lots of stuff that keeps you busy right now. You have to take a certain curriculum and it's being force fed down your throat, right? Whatever you're majoring in, whether it's psychology or engineering or Spanish or French or what have you, there's certain set courses. And so no one says a word about the fact that, hey, it might be helpful to learn more about the learning process. They just say, here, learn this. And so you don't really have time to step back and say, hmm, let's do a meta-analysis and see what might really be helpful for me. But when you get out of college or out of high school and you're suddenly on your own and you're facing the world, the working world uh, yourself, then suddenly you have to I mean you're you're the you're the boss, you're the controller of it's what's on going you. on in your life. That's mm-hmm. right. And suddenly you begin to realize, wait a minute, maybe maybe what people are telling me, maybe I better step back for a minute and see what I think is gonna be most helpful. Um, and you know everyone at a People at a university are interested only in their topics. If you're a professor, like, you know, for me as a professor of engineering, I I want my students to learn engineering. And I, I don't, well, I, I will say that I will bring some insights from learning how to learn into my engineering students' classes or, you know, into the classes I teach. But most university professors don't have that desire they don't have the background they don't have the knowledge about learning and so they they just it isn't so much that they don't care as they're not aware and so anyway students are they just don't know that anything's out there and they're too busy to really look it sounds to me like that's an argument for a kind of mandatory one or two year gap year before going from high school to college because once you get you know once you have a little bit of that that worldliness about you that life experience once you've had to make a few decisions for yourself you you know you you would think that you're much better equipped then to take on a task with some with some appreciation of um the the wider meaning of of that task or where it's going to lead you know whereas i'd certainly remember going to college when i was 18 i considered taking a gap year i didn't um and I wish I had because, um, you know, I just went straight from my, uh, my A levels, as they're, they're known over here, straight into university. It's like, it's like a, like a train, you know, you just get ferried from one thing to the next. And it wasn't until I got to the end of my first year in university, kind of had a bit of a early life crisis and thought, hang on, I, there's, there's a big world out there. And I actually withdrew myself from university in the first year, got on a one way train to, to Paris and actually spent six months living in France. Um, I don't know what was going through my mind. It's the kind of thing you can only do when you're 18, 19. But that gave me, I think, a kind of perspective, or at least the beginning of a perspective on 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 life that gave more meaning to and importance to the the things that I was studying. I, I, I would, if if I, were, if I were running things, I would make everybody take a couple of years out before they go to college. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the, you know, it's very well-meaning but one of the most problematic um, social programs that we have is the easy availability of college loans that kind of sucks people into going to college sometimes before they're really ready and before they're 
they've gained the maturity and the sort of um, worldview to think for themselves about what's actually what they're studying and what the bigger picture of what they're learning, um, you know, how that fits in and how it will fit in with their life and their career. Uh, a lot of times it's kind of like, well, gee, I'm graduating now and I'm pretty good at this subject. And so and my teachers tell me I should major in that. And so off they go without re really having any context about, you know, what they are learning and 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 where that is taking them. So, you know, I, I really agree with your ideas. There's a lot of talk at the moment in the UK, especially about, about university not necessarily being the right path for many, many people, because, you know, there are so many vocational careers for which, you know, a degree, while it's nice to have on paper, doesn't necessarily give you that, that, that training that you might need. Um, I'd like to transition to language learning now, and I'd like to start, I'd like to do that by putting forward a, an assumption or something that I've I found myself grappling with over time. And I don't know whether it, it holds water or not. So I'd like to kind of put it to you and have you react to it and then use that as the starting point for our discussion about, about, about languages. And it's this, that language learning is unlike, language learning as a topic area is unlike science or scientific subjects in that it's not so much what you might call knowledge acquisition or a kind of accumulation of knowledge or a set of calculations that you can work through to get what, what could be considered a final correct answer on an exam paper. I've felt that there is that distinction. And I've often wondered whether or not the way that we talk about learning is more applicable to the sciences than the arts. And I'm classifying language learning as more of an art in this case, which I guess is debatable. Could we start with that? And I'd like to have your your thoughts on whether you not whether or not you think that is a valid assumption or or even worth exploring. That's an interesting approach. I guess from my perspective, I think that learning in the sciences is far more of an art that is very much related to language learning than many other subjects. Um, it's a challenge is that many uh, educational researchers and psychologists who do research uh, regarding how we learn and so forth often come from backgrounds that are not heavily math-based. So they don't have a good math background and they will they will devise theories of learning that are applicable for learning if you're learning in psychology or in the social sciences or the humanities, but they aren't really very applicable for learning um, learning deeply and well in mathematics and particularly in math-heavy uh, sciences. So... So what that really means, I think, is that oftentimes educators and researchers who are working in education miss the commonality between uh, what's going on at deep levels neuroscientifically between learning in math, for example, and learning a language. There's 
there is um, both use in fact any kind of expertise that you're developing involves the development of a chunk a neural chunk and what that is is I'll, I'll give you a simple example and that is when you're learning to back up a car right so you learn to back up a car and when you first try to do it uh, I mean if you just even think about it it it's like do I look in the front mirror do I look in the back mirror do I look you know where do I look and it, it seems like an incredibly complex maneuver and you think oh my word I can never learn to do this I you know it's very confusing and then within a few days you begin to um to um uh, understand that, oh, now wait a minute. All I need to do is sort of begin to, I look here, look there, and you, after a while, you don't even think about it. You, you can just do it automatically. And learning a language is very much like that. At first, when you look at how do I conjugate this verb, uh, how do I put it in the ten- sentence, you know, how do I know what tense to, to put it in and so forth, and it seems incredibly complex. But after a while, when you've practiced, you build these neural chunks, you know, uh, uh, a pattern that you can easily draw into mind for any given situation, and then uh, and then you find yourself speaking the language and it's very much like that in math so you get an equation you uh, at first it's like i don't even know what this means it's it seems so unnatural what's this x that's you know kind of drifting around here and i'm supposed to stuff something into it and then you start working with it and it starts to Oh, it starts to make sense and you can pull it up as one neural chunk. So there's an underlying commonality. And I think one of the most important aspects that we know of from neuroscience is these, this developing of a library of, of neural patterns, of chunks, whatever the subject that you're trying to learn. And what are the, if, if developing these neural chunks, as, as you say, is the aim? If that's what we know, we're kind of responsible for advancing in the subject. Do you teach the specific equations themselves as a teacher? Or do you teach the students to follow the kind of behaviors that will lead to them developing those, those, those chunks? Oh, good question. Is, is that clear as a question? I, I think so. Perhaps, See, I could, and perhaps I could give a, 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 an example of this relating it back to language learning because you see, as when I observe adults coming to learn a language, what invariably happens is that it, I see it being treated as a jigsaw puzzle, much the way as much much as if you were uh, approaching understanding a, a math equation, for example. Um, in that, you would you would look in your textbook and you'd see, okay, here is how you form the present perfect um, in in English. Here are the rules. Here are the exceptions. And there's there's a a, a presumption from 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 most learners that if you simply set about learning these rules and you you do a good enough job of memorizing these rules and remembering them then you will be able to form the present perfect correctly and then and so on and so forth with all the different um areas of grammar in different languages but as i as i see people doing that and i I see them progressing invariably what happens is they get stuck because 
there's simply too much to hold in your brain at one time. You 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 can't remember all the all the exceptions and all the rules, um, like the you know the the, the case endings in different languages, whatever it may be. That there's too much to hold in 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 this what seems to me to be the part of your brain that, that kind of retains information that um, I'm probably going to mix my terminology here, but there's, to put it simply, there's too much to hold in your mind at any one point. And I know from experience that the only way to get to the point where you actually use that grammar correctly, naturally, is not through continued study of that grammar, but it's through a set of behaviours which involve time spent with the language, um, time speaking the language you get to actually put into practice what you're doing even if it's wrong time spent noticing doing as what as much as you can to actually notice patterns in, in in language that you're looking at it's only through those kind of behaviors that you are ever going to have a chance of developing any kind of natural ability with these difficult grammar points and without those behaviors you, you're never going to get there however much you you know quote unquote study and so as a teacher what I, and, and you know, my, this podcast is, is completely dedicated to how to learn a language, right? But I spend almost no time talking about here's how you make the present perfect. And I spend all my time thinking about, did you study today? Why not? How much speaking did you do last week? How much listening have you done? Like, spoke, focusing on the behaviors that I know are responsible for that progress in the language. And so that's, that, that's why I asked the question about as a, as a teacher, um, where do you, what do you teach? Like, what, do you focus on, 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 on the nuts and bolts? Or do you focus on the broader holistic elements, the behaviours that you know are going to uh, bring about the, the learning? When I'm teaching, you kind of have to do a little bit of both when you're teaching, in, in, for example, in engineering. There is some nuts and bolts stuff. So... When we get to pretty advanced levels, I mean, you can't um, – sometimes it's so difficult that you can't just say, well, here's this problem. Figure it all out yourself. You have to uh, uh, sort of provide a bit of a template, help people work through a sample problem on their own. So uh, by doing that, you – it's it's as you're saying uh, there's too much of a cognitive load if you have to remember every little detail and every little step so we provide a bit of a structure that says now here's a sample problem and then they start to build a little bit of structure because they work through and there might be a few steps that they have to come up with themselves as they begin to work through a sample problem now if they're a good student here's what they do They'll work through the sample problem. They'll do those few little steps, you know, that, that they were supposed to fill in. Then they'll work it again, and they'll try to see if they can generate it, the solution, cold from inside. And then if they're able to do that and they start working other problems, seeing if they can generate it cold from inside, uh, and then they'll start going to new problems. That's analogous to you're going out and speaking with other people and you mess up and you check your solution and see if it works. And that's the analogous to getting feedback from people. You know, oh, you made some mistakes when you were speaking. 
So we're we're actually doing a lot of the same things mm-hmm. when we're learning in math and science as you are when you're learning uh, learning a language by practicing and speaking with people. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 very interesting. Um, for the language learning, then you mentioned Russian, and I'm sure everybody's dying to know. Um, r- just remind me again that the institute, the institution in which you learned Russian, Defense Language Institute. The defense, and is that different? <laughs> forgive my ignorance on this. Is that different from the Foreign Service Institute? Ah, uh, yes, it's well, it's the military, and I'm not familiar with the Foreign Inst- uh, Service Institute, but uh, it's. This um, language institute, I believe, grew out of World War II and having to sort of cram learn uh, new languages and have people learn them very quickly. But I followed that by uh, having two years where I finished my bachelor's degree at the University of Washington in Slavic languages and literature. So I was able to contrast sort of a typical bachelor's degree program with intensive language learning. And then, of course, to contrast that with being stuffed out where you're just speaking it all the time. And and, and which came first? The, the Defense Language Institute came first? Yes. And then, uh, and then the University of Washington, uh, so a bachelor's degree. And then, finally, just being stuck out uh, sort of in the wild speaking Russian. Okay, talk to us about the the differences in in your experience then from in terms of the approach because I'm sure everyone's dying to know well how did they teach you in the defense language institute like if you you go into a into a military language training program you assume it's it's pretty good so what do they do and how effective was it I think one of the advantages of what they had at that time which now is available for everyone is there was a lot of opportunity to listen and speak, listen and speak. So uh, you had really, you know, a language lab where you could go and just spend a lot of time listening to the language. And I took advantage of that. I really thought that it was important to try to, to speak with a good accent. And my accent is a little rusty now, you know, but even so uh, when I, say something like uh, it, it still comes out not too badly sounds pretty well which is, to me <laughs> yeah it's you know too much it's time to kill you <laughs> so which i sometimes would hear when i was working out of the trawlers because they were sure i was a spy right. uh, and i wasn't actually but with my military background one could see why they thought that but um so i think some of the differences were that I thought the the military had really good set of books that laid everything out very clearly. So you each day you had a certain amount of vocabulary you learned. You had drills that you would all work on together. So, you know, so you're practicing kind of in some sense chunking. And this is teacher led uh, classroom time, is it? Yes. So we had mostly native speakers of Russian and uh, or else very, very good uh, Americans. And and so we practice and we talk uh, with one another. And uh, and it was it was I think in some ways it was better than the bachelor's degree just because the books that we had were so um, 
so well laid out and and then you you had the opportunity to just cram in lots and lots of vocabulary and get practice with it daily with a speaker which is not really quite available when you're you know at a university what's interesting as i'm listening to you 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 reference the books a number of times but not the teachers is that because tell me about that oh good point um i think it's because see and this was where being out working with the Russians made an enormous difference. It, we had a classroom of about 15 people. So if you have one teacher and 15 people, uh, and a lot of them weren't, I mean, they were okay with languages, but they were just kind of, you know, it was a the military. They were there. They had to be there. It wasn't like they were in love with it. So that meant that, you know, about uh you know for every for every 15 minutes of talking you get one minute of talking and uh, you'd hear the teacher but the interactions were, were mostly with fellow americans some of whom weren't really devoted to the language so i think that's why going out on the ships and working with the russians directly where i just had to speak all the time yeah. uh, made a big difference but this, that came a number of years later didn't it so how, i mean how uh, for the in, for the time that you were in the defense language institute um what how would you how would you rate your progress in that time i mean are you able to say what what proficiency level you got to over over that time is there a benchmark that they set to... <sighs> I I don't have a you know a way to quantify how good I was. Um, I think what I got was a solid structure. Like yeah. you know I knew uh, I I knew the tenses. I knew how to conjugate things. I knew the endings and so forth. And then so I, I took the basic uh, Russian, and then I went on to the intermediate Russian, which is another six month class, and. You know, I was. Uh, it's hard to say how how good are you? How good were you? Yeah. Certainly, if you just threw me in with Russians, I could do I could do okay, but it wasn't as conversational and easy to come to mind as later after I'd gotten a chance to practice with it. What I th- what I think you're describing, to the best of my of my knowledge, um, in in there is a, is the audio lingual method. Are you are you familiar with that? Um, that methodology as a, as a name. Um, no, no. It's, um, it, we actually, we covered this in, a, in, a, in another, in another podcast, but yeah, it's exactly what you're, what you're describing. It's a lot of, um, a lot of structured repetition and drilling a lot of work on pronunciation, but very situational. So, um, rather than focusing on conversational fluency, for example, you focus a lot more on here's what you say in this situation. And here are all the lines that you need and the words that you need to, to get by in such a, in, in very specific situations, communicatively, uh, is is that how accurate Not, is that? I wouldn't say that is correct. I mean, we had to do a lot of exercises where we would sit and and speak with one another, okay. or speak with the teacher, or uh, or do perhaps uh, read an essay and then write our own reactive essay. You know, maybe about. 
the general subject, for example, some guy jumps out of a plane and his parachute doesn't open and he falls into the snow and he actually lives but his nose comes off or something like that, and, which is, you know, the kind of uh, stories I, they had us reading at the time. But it, was, it wasn't really like, okay – uh, you go into a bookstore and you say, this is exactly what you say to order a book or something. It was, it was um, you know, more conversational and fluent uh, from that uh, perspective. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, that, sounds, that, sounds, that sounds great. Um, so from your time there to the two years at college, which I guess were spent mostly with academic um, activities, um it yes um so it was taking some language courses uh and some literature courses sometimes in russian sometimes in english uh but it wasn't as nearly as um condensed as in the in fact it was more like a repetition of things that I'd already learned at the defense language institute and I have to say, I kind of enjoyed that because it gave me a lot of other time to just go messing around, <laughs> right. you know, which is what the college years are for. So. <laughs> yeah, so so you've had the time in the Defense Language Institute, then you have the ac- more academic stuff in, in college, and then you go off onto the trawlers, which is which just sounds insane. Um, here, what I, what I want to ask you next is, is something that I struggle with as a as a as a teacher, which is which is that my background with languages a lot of my early successes with languages happened when i was pretty young i was um 20 21 22 i i would i was fortunate enough to have all the right conditions around me so i was i was at college i had plenty of time um i had this developed this desire to learn languages uh, i was lucky enough to live in london with plenty of foreigners around me who i could practice with and rope in to do language exchanges and had enough spare money lying around to go on the occasional trip to Brazil or to Spain or whatever it may be. And so a lot of my, when I, when I think about, you know, my, my year, my successful time in language learning, I put it very much down to those circumstances. Mm. And so I often struggle to know what to say to somebody who say, who's coming at language learning at a later stage in life, has very different circumstances, limited time, um, probably limited flexibility in terms of, you know, personal life, family life and stuff like that. I find it a little bit difficult to bridge the gap between what I have to acknowledge was crucial in my language success for me when I was younger and then the reality of somebody who has not had that and is approaching it from what has to be a kind of classroom-based uh, intellectual pursuit. So how do you, when you look back on your um, experience with Russian, how easy do you find it to extrapolate lessons from that and and in 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 such a way that somebody who has not had that experience and is coming at language learning later in life can understand and appreciate oh this is a, it's a bit of a tough question because uh, so i i'll just um Okay, I'll mention my secret challenge now is that I'm I'm trying to learn Spanish, oh, and yeah. so I'm 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 I, I'm struggling forward, and I'm still at a very beginner level. Um, and the challenge for me is my life is packed, 
and I know this is true for many people, yeah. but for example, people will tell you that when you have a book coming out, that that is a really difficult time. It's a very full time in your life. Well, I had a book coming out at the same time as a MOOC coming out last month, and it's like a double whammy. And for the last, you know, like year, I've just been like going nonstop. And those few moments sometimes where I, I'm, I'm like, I don't want to focus right now because I've been focusing so hard. And so, um, so this has been a challenge. And I think the challenge that I have, um, you know, e- even as a language, you know, I've learned a language before. So I, um, you know, it's, it's like I'm not being very helpful here, um, except perhaps in just uh, acknowledging to viewers and listeners that I think many of us struggle with some of these kinds of issues. Uh, just mm. the older you get, the the more full your life can be. And uh, so it's, you know, it makes language learning a challenge, which is really all the more difficult because I think language learning is really where it's at as far as um, just helping you get a grip on life. And even from the perspective of neuroscience, as far as what languages decay, or I mean, what areas of the brain decay as you get older, it's the language learning areas. And so if you focus on learning a new language as you're getting much older, it can help rejuvenate the very areas that are most prone to decline. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I agree with you that it, I mean, it's very difficult to be helpful with this particular question because you, you simply can't get away from the fact that, um, you know, circumstances such as, as, as yours when you were young, I guess, and, and mine as well, are very, very favorable. And, you know, how do you replicate that when you're older and you have no free time or very little free time? I mean, I, I do, you, do you look, I mean, do you, when you when you sit down to learn Spanish these days, even if it's only for fifteen minutes or so, but do you do you think back to your Russian, and do you think to yourself like, okay, what did I do? What worked? What like? Do you try and put your finger on the on 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 what was responsible for for your progress at different points, or do you treat this as a new challenge? Oh, uh, definitely, I reflect back because when I first began to try to study, I found that. Um, what I was learning just seemed to slip away. And I thought, oh, you know, I must be getting older. And it's just not sticking because I am, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I'm getting older. And then I began looking at what I was doing. And the thing is, I was just reading it, you know, like my eyes were going on it, and I would write it down. But I wasn't hearing it. And I wasn't saying it aloud. And I don't, you know, that's pretty dumb of me. Um, Yeah, I'm just busy uh, and I tend to be a little bit quiet when I'm on my own. And I didn't realize that I wasn't actively um, saying aloud and hearing these things. So then when I switched over to... um, to where I could listen to, so what I do is I, I'll listen to little videos that have snippets. Uh, you know, it's something called Yabla. And so yeah. I'll, uh, I, I, I listen to it and then I get these snippets and so forth. And I kind of practice with them and I say them. And 
they stick. I'm just like amazed. It, it's much. It's a. It's really quite a difference. Um, but I think one thing I'm I'm struggling with is just um, finding the time to, as you say, um, to like get on Skype and speak with a, a, a person. Because part of it is, I always feel really embarrassed. Like, you know, I've only had a few minutes this week to look things over. I'm yeah. not going to be any better this week than I was last week. And so it's uh, it's embarrassing for me to make myself uh, do like a, an I talk I call with with yeah. someone and practice the Spanish that way. It's 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 fascinating because what you're describing is exactly. Um, what I was mentioning earlier in terms of the behaviors that actually lead to success or not, because that feeling of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of embarrassment or, I mean, it is, it is, I mean, you cannot escape that in language learning. I have it all the time now. I mean, I've been learning Cantonese for three years now, which is a really tough language. And, and I, I, the shadow that looms over my whole experience learning Cantonese is, you know, damn, when I was 20, 21, I'd learned two languages in the time that I, two, two languages or three languages, two fluency in the time that it's taken me to get this far in Cantonese. And, and I think back to, um, that, and, and that leaves me with a certain sense of, um, of, uh, I, I, not embarrassment is the wrong word, but it plays on me so, such that, when I get the opportunity to speak Cantonese, it's not like open-hearted, uh, you know, just go for it, no shame sort of thing. I, I, I've kind of, I, I'm questioning myself and I'm second guessing myself. And, and I know for a fact that if I can get rid of that somehow, if I can get rid of that feeling, there are going to be a huge swathe of knock-on effects that will result in increased fluency, increased motivation, and so on and so forth. None of which actually has to do with learning the language itself. It's all psychological and behavioral. And I caught myself on this recently because I, I'd realized that I'd been through a period of uh, a lot of study. So I spent a few months doing a lot of uh, active listening and reading. And I, I kind of woke up one day and I thought, hang on a minute, I haven't spoken the language for like two or three months. So I quickly got on italki and I got booked a whole series of lessons. And sure enough, um, you know, first couple of lessons were a little bit ugh, getting back into the swing of it. But then after like four or five hours of talking, I was like, I've better than I ever had been before. And it's um, so that it's whatever whatever direction I go with language learning, wherever I, whatever wherever the conversation goes, for me it always comes back to this. And I've never seen, I've never met anybody who consistently exhibits these behaviours of like proactive uh, studying, time spent speaking, time spent with the language, who doesn't make huge progress. Um, so, so, so yeah, that um, it's a uh, it's. It's very interesting. I would, I wonder, given that, and maybe this is the where we'll we'll end the the, the conversation today. If you were to teach a beginner's Russian course now, if you were to walk into a, uh, you know, first semester Russian course, knowing what you know about learning and about languages, what do you tell them about? the next three or four years what do you tell them about what they have to do oh um i'm putting you on the spot here i know so feel free to take take a bit take a bit of time i guess what i'm trying to get to is what's what's it really all about you know what's the what what's it really about it, it's falling in love with the language 
I mean, that's, I think what you're really telling me here is like, I want to learn Spanish. And at the same time, I think that I'm not letting myself fall in love with the language because I know how much time it will suck away from all my other things. And so maybe if I can just come up with a way to uh, allow myself to fall into in love with the language the way I know I want to, but also sort of give myself a sense of trust that it's okay. You will still be able to accomplish your other things. You know, I won't let you fall that much in love with it. Um, or, you know, that maybe that's the best way to move forward. How do you fall in love with the language? It's, now this is going to sound fun. It's the smell. Okay. It's, Say some more. Uh, it's, you know, like for me, it was, uh, there's a smell about uh, Russian like this. There was the Russian, there was the old Soviet soap. And there was the, you know, the pelmeni and the, the way things that, um, you know, the, the way things smelled when I was working with the Russians. There's a, like a different, it's just a different smell. And I, I, I really liked it. And, uh, I have the same for me. I mean, Japanese is Japanese is my favorite language, and um, it's not my best, but it's my favorite. And for me, I associate um, Japanese with this. I don't know if you've ever been. You've, I believe you've been to Japan. Um, uh, am, am I right? You've been. To, you've spent some time. Uh, well, I've been there a little bit, but I'm going next month, and I'm like, oh, I want to like pick up at least a few phrases, oh, right. you know? <laughs> okay. Well, when you when you go, you, you're walking down a street in some suburb of Japan, and you walk past a little. Um, soba shop or a udon shop basically japanese japanese noodles and the smell wafting out of those is i, I don't even know what it is i don't know if it's a combination of the of the shoyu there's the soy sauce or if it's some of the condiments they use but it's the basically the kind of the the, the japanese stock that is used as a base for, for for everything whether it's the miso soup or the or the soba noodles and it's that that is i mean why it's that i don't know but for me that's japanese and every time i even you know kind of walk past a, a restaurant in london that is probably nowhere nothing like an authentic japanese place but that smell hits me and str i'm transported instantly back to back to japan but not only that i start to get these kind of pangs for 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 the time that i spent there i was there for three and a half years and then straight away japanese thought starts to enter my mind and uh, it just the smell alone just it brings everything back and it, it it that sensation that smell encapsulates everything that um that the language means to me uh i guess because ultimately it's not just about the language is it the language is the vehicle with which you communicate with the people and you get to know the culture um so it, it it's I guess the thing of falling in love with the language is is it's okay, it's broader than that, isn't it? It's falling in love with the culture. It's falling in love with that way of viewing the world and that way of looking at life. Exactly. That's that's what it's all about. Okay. Well, on that note, let's draw it to a close. Um, I I know that you have you've written a number of books, but there's one of your most recent ones, um, which uh, I'd love you to tell us about here briefly. Oh, it. The, the book is Mind Shift, and it just came out, and it's about 
changing your attitude towards what you can learn. So it's um, it's exactly the kinds of things that we've been speaking about uh, and that you've spoken so eloquently about today. So, um, it so if you're, what's that? Who's it for? It is for anyone who feels like they're they want something broader. They want to learn more broadly than what they think they can learn. So, uh, so it's I got to travel all over the world and meet very interesting people who've made some extraordinary changes that give you food for thought about the kinds of things that you might be able to do that you currently think you can't do. So it was a lot of fun working on it, and I got to interview some great scientists and find out more about how our brain changes. And uh, and the book's just out, and it's doing really well, so I'm very happy. Wonderful. Well, hopefully we'll be able to help it do a little bit better. Uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of people interested. I'll, I'll make sure to leave a link to that. Uh, if, in the usual places, people know where that is in the show notes and descriptions, whatever whatever they are. Um, but finally, if people would like to get in touch with you or stalk you on social media or the internet, where, <laughs> where, where should they do so? Uh, if you go to barbaraoakley.com, you'll see uh, links to my books and also to the online course, Learning How to Learn, and the other online course, which is MindShift. And if they sign up for Learning How to Learn, which is free, then they'll get weekly emails from me about all sorts of aspects related to learning and including links to, for example, your podcast. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's been fascinating. I I kind of have the often have the feeling after these chats that we could really have taken any one of the the, the topics that we touched on and, and, and spent the whole hour discussing that. So um, hopefully what we've, what we've covered today has been interesting for people and given some food for thought. Uh, so thank you once again, and uh, I'd, uh, I'd love to invite you back at some point in the future. It's a deal, and in the meantime, I'm going to go off and smell some salsa. <laughs> okay, <laughs> for better or for worse. All right, thanks so much, Bob. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. I do hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you'd like to leave us a comment, perhaps a question for Barb, or perhaps you'd like to look through the, the, the episode notes, follow some of the links that we mentioned, or share the episode with your friends, you can do so by going to IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com forward slash Barb, B-A-R-B. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so that you get all future episodes delivered directly to your podcasting device, whatever that may be. And lastly, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you back in the next episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. You know, one of the questions I get asked most often about language learning is how to improve your memory. Because things get so much easier when you learn new words and you don't forget them later in conversation when you really need them. So what I decided to do was to put together a, a, a short email course. It's a three-part email course over three days that teaches you my favorite techniques for memorizing vocabulary and actually putting that vocabulary into your long-term memory. It's a short course, three days, it's completely free, and if you'd like to sign up for it, please go to IWillTeachYourLanguage.com forward slash free memory course. 